I am, uh, I'm confident that this season will pass, and that brings me hope. But I'm not confident that we won't all come out of it a little bit weird. Um, I was just sitting down there a minute ago, and I, I find when I'm wearing my mask that I occasionally just want to touch my lips to the fabric, and just you just feel it. it's just a weird tendency I've developed. And I'm afraid now that when I get used to not wearing a mask, I'm just going to walk around looking like a fish, just, and maybe not. Um, you know, I, I think it's so unusual. Uh, it's got to be a weird thing to be a baby right now and to think this is the only kind of normal the world has ever known. Um, there's going to be two or three-year-olds in a year that are just totally disturbed by all the naked noses running around the world for the first time in their lives. And so I can't even imagine what that's like to explain to your child what a naked nose is like. But there we are. Um, we're going to come out of this changed and weirder. Um, but culture... It kind of shifts and evolves. Culture is always kind of moving and it's always kind of changing and, and the world kind of has to, to move with it. There's no world that has ever been unchanged and there is no normal and there's no default when it comes to kind of culture shaping and how people interact with one another. Uh, and so when it comes to the gospel, which we've been talking about for the last several weeks, the gospel always takes place within culture. And within the actual lived lives of both the people who communicate it and the people who are hearing it or receiving it. Now, often the gospel we get today, we get from, from reading it. Now, but even when you're reading the gospel, you're not getting it directly from God. It, it is God's word, and it is, is holy and true in that way. But when you pick which one of the gospel authors you want to read, you're choosing whether you want to read the gospel from within Luke's context into yours or John's context into yours. And because of that, they tell different stories in different ways about the one gospel. And it is one gospel told differently. And it's told differently because they're each shaped by their own experiences and who they understand their audience to be. And so I think even in very small ways in our lives, we can kind of understand this. Um, several years back, I heard someone talking about how how difficult it was for them to hear God referred to as the Heavenly Father. And, and this person was sharing that they grew up with a father who was not good, a biological father who was in fact uh, abusive and oppressive and who was not present in his life uh, for much of his life. Uh, he just abandoned him. And so when someone said, God is like a father, he said, that makes about as much sense to me as finding out that God is like having a pet dragon. It's not part of my lived experience. And so how can I, who have never experienced what it is like to have a good and loving father, translate that into understanding what God wants to be in my life? And so for him, that little slice of the gospel about God being your good heavenly father was something that was outside of his context and culture, his world experience, and it made it difficult for him to interact with, with God. So he had to find other ways to understand God that made sense to him. And he communicated about God differently to other people as a result of his experiences. Now, that doesn't mean that the gospel is constantly changed by our culture or context or lived experiences. The gospel is eternally true, and the core of it is incredibly consistent. God created, sin destroyed, Jesus saved, we believe. Those elements, the four, what we've been talking about, the four chapters of the story of the gospel over the past several weeks, are eternal there's no modification of those four pieces. 
when you boil it down to those, those fundamental foundational truths are at the core of the gospel. Now, those four chapters can be told in all kinds of different ways. The Bible scholar and theologian D.A. Carson did work uh, trying to figure out how many kind of different themes run through Scripture that kind of tie in and interweave with one another to explain the gospel using different kind of themes or stories or different perspectives. And he came up with over 20, over 20 different ways that the Bible tells the gospel story with different uh, themes. And I want to share three of them with you. Uh, And when you look at the three themes, what he kind of defined as a theme is it has to answer uh, really several things. And he didn't really use the four pieces that we've been talking about. He kind of has five things. Uh, A theme that presents the gospel has to deal with what happened at creation, what is sin, what is Israel's role, what is Jesus's role, and what does restoration look like? And it really follows this kind of same outline we've been doing in a little bit of a different, uh, in a different way. And so I want to show you three of these themes so that you can see how the gospel can be told in different ways, even while being very different, remaining uh, true to the core. Uh, the first of these is home versus exile. Are we where we belong or are we strangers in a foreign world where we are apart from where we need to be and needing to go back? Is this where we ought to be, or is God calling us to be back with him somewhere else? And when you look at this home versus exile theme, what you see is at creation, we were made for a place of rest and shalom, a place of peace, a place where we are in God's presence and all is good and all is right. But when sin enters the world and sin in the home and exile theme is self-centeredness and it results in a destruction of peace. Things were good until we got so self-absorbed that we broke the goodness of God. And as a result of that, we are then exiled. Israel is seen as being in exile when they are in Egypt. They're seen as in exile when they are in Babylon. And the question at the beginning of the New Testament is, will we ever come back from being in exile and be people that are reunited with God? Jesus then becomes the answer to that. He is rejected, but then the resurrected Lord who breaks the power of death. And he breaks the separation that has pushed us into exile away from God so that restoration means coming back into the garden city of God. The new heavens and the new earth, this idea of, of a restoration of, of the garden in Eden that we were exiled from, we're finally all put back together. And it's a beautiful story of, of resting in God's presence, of being removed from God's presence, and God constantly be trying to bring you back to where we started and where we belonged. And this theme allows us to have great images, great songs. How many songs can you think of that talk about uh, the garden and walking with God and the peace of God and the relationship with God and about once being far away but now coming near? And so many different uh, scriptures and songs echo that theme that tells us the gospel story. The second one uh, is, is different. The second one is focusing on Yahweh, which is God, and covenant that God has this uh, very sacred and, and solemn and holy covenant with his people. 
And when he creates them, he creates them to be in relationship and in a faithful covenant that where we can be in love with him. It almost has this marriage kind of imagery that we make a covenant with God so that we can live with him with a certain set of agreements. He will be our God and we will be his people. He will give us his laws and expectations and we will follow them and be faithful to him and not to idols and others. And when we look at this Yahweh and covenant theme of, uh, of the gospel, what we see is that sin is when we break the rules. God says, we've got a deal that we can live within. As long as you live within the rules, things are going to go really good. And as soon as God says that, humans break the rules, break the agreement. They're out of bounds of the covenant. And so Israel is called to faithfulness over and over and over again. And Israel over and over and over again worships idols and is immoral alongside the people that live around them. And they're constantly failing to be faithful to God in the covenant that he's provided for them. And the question at the end of the Old Testament is, will the people of God ever be able to be faithful enough to stay in covenant with him? And so Jesus then becomes what Isaiah prophesies about, the suffering servant, but the new covenant Lord who takes sin's curse. See, with Yahweh in covenant, there's a price that has to be paid to come back into covenant. There has, something has to be done to restore it. And Jesus pays the price so that we can have our sin curse dealt with and come back into covenant with God. Jesus is putting it all back together again after we keep breaking it by not being faithful. And finally, restoration in this theme is that the marriage supper of the Lamb is the feast where it is finally all put back together and restored. And we all get to go to the party and celebrate the union that is now eternal and unbreakable because of Jesus Christ. It's a different image than the home in exile, but it's telling the same core gospel story in a very different way. I want to look at one more of these themes so you can kind of see the richness that Scripture is telling the same story with. And the third one is kingdom. This is one that's become increasingly popular uh, in recent years. Uh, N.T. Wright talks extensively about the kingdom of God. And so many people, as we realize more and more that the world is not, uh, the power structures of the world are not always the power structures of the kingdom of God. The, the desire for the church to proclaim the kingdom of God over and against the kingdoms of this world is growing. And I think it tells us something uh, that we know that God is king and that no one else that claims to is. And suddenly this story starts creeping up more, responding to the world that we live in, the culture where we find ourselves. In the kingdom theme of the gospel, uh, at creation, the creation was made for God's kingdom and for God's kingliness the world would be oriented around the heart and the desire and the will and the reign of God. And yet sin comes in, and sin is idolatry, and it causes enslavement to something other than the king. When you orient your life around idolatry, uh, what you're doing is you're saying, I choose this thing to be king and ruler of my life instead of Yahweh, instead of God, instead of the one who created me. And so Israel is constantly this people that is looking for a true judge and a true king. And they're constantly looking to people and saying, who will rule over us and lead us to being the people that we need to be, the people of God? And God wants to be that king, but Israel struggles over and over again to give him that seat among them. And so Jesus then is the returning true king 
who frees us from all that we've become enslaved to. So all the things that we've chosen and made the idols and the kings of our life, Jesus comes and he breaks that enslavement and that bondage so that we can now be free to choose God as king again. And we then become the restored, truly free people who willingly place ourselves under the reign of God. What a thing. What a thing to do. And so again, a different theme, a different, very different images and uh, pictures of what the gospel story is that exist in culture very differently. But each one of these stays true to God creates, sin destroys, Jesus saves, we believe. That story remains consistent through all of these different presentations. And, and so the Bible, that story is so beautiful and powerful that it has to be told in different ways to connect with different people in different times and in different places. And so it's important that we as Christians today continue this biblical tradition of finding the best ways to tell the story to the world that we live in. The passage that Dennis read earlier uh, from Paul where he talks to the Corinthians uh, offers this teaching about his missionary method. When I present the gospel, he begins in, in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became the weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So the question has to be asked, does this make Paul the master manipulator? That he goes in all circumstances and he just kind of chameleons his way into the lives of the people that he's preaching to. And he says, what's going to work with you? And then I will do that. And what's going to work with you? And I will do that. No, it's not him being manipulative. It's him being an incredible communicator. He has the ability to go and learn from his intended audience how they listen, how they think, what matters to them. And then he looks at the gospel and he says, this is the most true thing in the world. It will fit into your culture. If I can listen to your culture, I can find a way to speak the gospel into it in a way that you're actually going to be able to hear. And so Paul says, to the Jews I became like the Jews, to the Gentiles I became like the Gentiles. And he's not saying, I don't have values and I'm not centered. What he's saying is, I believe the gospel so centers both me and the entire creation, I can speak it into any culture effectively. And he develops the ability to adapt the gospel in ways that it will be heard in so many different contexts. And he also talks at the beginning of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and verse 22 how the audience hears the gospel differently. He says, The Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. He says, when I preach Christ crucified, it seems weak to the Jews and it seems foolish to the Greeks. But when those who are called to hear this, hear it, 
then it becomes power to the Jews and wisdom to the Greeks. But they receive it differently. They're challenged by the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ differently within their different context. And so what we see here is that Paul is saying, I've got to modify the gospel so that as the one who is speaking it, I speak it in a way that it can be heard. And the people who are hearing it, hear it within their different context in ways that are challenging uh, to them in different ways. And he's just recognizing what we're really trying to get at today is that the gospel has to be preached from one human to another. Whether it's from Luke to a person reading it today, or whether it's from me to you or you to your neighbor, you've got to find the best way for you in your life and world to proclaim the good news in a way that they in their life and world can hear it. And the gospel... It's not simple and it's not plain, but it has so much complexity that it can handle this weight of being used and communicated in all places, in all times, to all people. We don't have time to go through Paul's three sermons in in Acts, but I want to kind of hit the highlights of these a little bit. Um, In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are preaching to Jews and Gentile God-fearers. And that phrase, Gentile God-fearers, means Gentiles who have not converted to Judaism, but who worship Yahweh as Gentiles. Uh, They're kind of uh, respecters of the Jewish faith but from an outsider's point of view. So they're kind of this somewhat in in the faith and somewhat outside of the faith. So on on Sabbath day, they're probably at the synagogue. They may even give some of their money to the synagogue and help support Jews. Uh, We see this with Cornelius and others uh, in the gospel stories, uh, that what they do is they are Gentiles who have a high, high respect and reverence for both the Jewish faith and way of living and ultimately for Yahweh, for God. And so the... Paul and Barnabas show up and preach this, uh, and in this sermon, they're preaching to people who all know the Torah, and they all know the history of Israel, and they know about uh, the Exodus, and they know about the prophets. And so when they start that sermon, uh, look at what the major themes are, the major focuses of this sermon in Acts chapter 13, when their audience is Jews and Gentiles who believe Jewish things. Their focus is how God chose our ancestors. He talks a lot about the Exodus. He talks about the judges and kings from Israel's history. He talks about the importance of the fulfillment of prophecy in this man, Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. He's going to talk about all those things, but it's very Jewish. But you go to the next chapter, chapter 14. Now Paul's preaching uh, to some non-educated pagans out in the countryside, and he finds that he's going to use an argument of God in nature. He's going to argue that, that I can tell you about the God who created all the things that you see. Do you see the crops that are growing and the rain that falls? All of that is from God. He created it, and he continues to hold it in existence. There's a whole mess that's going on in this story because when Paul got there, he healed uh, someone at the city gate, and they decided that that Paul and Barnabas are um, Greek gods in disguise coming to test their hospitality and to test whether they'll worship them or not. And, And so Paul is just having throughout this whole story to say, I'm not Zeus, stop worshiping me. I'm just a human like you are, stop worshiping me. And the the people are going, right, we see through your trick. You're really testing us, Zeus. And they're sacrificing bulls. And he's yelling, stop! 
stop. He doesn't talk about the Exodus. He doesn't talk about the prophets. These people don't know those stories, don't care about those stories. They are hearing and seeing everything that Paul is doing from the context of Greeks who believe in Zeus. So Paul has to say, I'm human, and I want to tell you about the God who created and the God who sustains. And the major focus uh, of this passage is that God is uh, the one who creates, that we are only humans and not gods, that God is revealed in nature, and that God provides for all people. It's a totally different sermon. And neither of these comes anywhere close to the sermon that he gives in, in Acts chapter 17. And I want to read this one a little bit. In Acts chapter 17, Paul finds himself uh, preaching to the Areopagus, and he's preaching on Mars Hill. And, and Mars Hill is a rocky outcropping that's just below uh, the Parthenon that you can go on today. I've been to uh, Mars Hill, and when you stand there, there is a bronze uh, plate where this sermon of Paul's is engraved on the side of Mars Hill. It's one of the most famous sermons ever given. And Paul gives this sermon on Mars Hill. And Mars Hill is where uh, all of the Greek philosophers and scholars and, and master thinkers would come. This is the most educated people in, in that uh, time of history would gather on this hill. And when you're standing on this hill, just over your shoulder is the Parthenon where sacrifices are being offered to the Greek gods and where uh, there are temple prostitutes that are there and that's part of the worship of these people. And these scholars, when they would go to worship, are participating in all of that. And, and below Mars Hill is this, uh, this agora, this marketplace that is filled. You can't walk five steps without seeing an idol to some god. And, and they're so religious, they even have one idol just in case they missed one that's to the unknown god. And Paul walks around and he sees all of this. To a Jewish Pharisee who now believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, these idols would have just been overwhelming to see this much that is in opposition to God in this place and that kind of worship that's going on uh, up on the hill behind him. And here he is with these scholars, and he's got to adapt the gospel so that they will hear it with their ears and in their words that it might appeal to them so that some might be saved. So Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He compliments them. For as I walked around and looked carefully over your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, by the way, does Paul think that that idol is an idol to Yahweh? Or does Paul think, as a Jew who's now a Christian, that an idol to Yahweh is offensive and wrong and immoral? He absolutely thinks that. But he sees an in to talk to them about something within their faith that he can grow into something that might become a new form of their faith in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't sit there and say, there's no such thing as an idol to the God that I'm going to talk to you about. He instead just says, let me tell you about this one. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, like that one. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, get, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
And he marked out at their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. God is present to us, he says. You don't have to go to Mount Olympus or the Parthenon to find God. He's ready for there. If you'll reach out to him, he will respond. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He quotes them and he says, I'm not bringing you a foreign God. This is part of your religion down there with your statue. This is part of your heritage and your literature as your poets have said. I'm teaching you what you have in part known. I'm just fully revealing to you the parts you've missed. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Look at where Paul's gone from. Let me tell you about this idol to an unknown God that was made by human hands. This is the God who is created uh, and who created, this is the God who created all things. And through him, all things were created, and he wants to have a relationship with you. But by the way, uh, this God can't be contained in things made by human hands. That idol's not really him. He's much, much bigger than that. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you on this subject again. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demaris, and a number of others. That's a good sermon. But it's very, very different from the one he gave to the Jews and Gentiles earlier. In this passage, he focuses instead on very different things. He focuses on their religiosity. He compliments their faith. He uses their religion as an entry point. He quotes their own poets and literary figures to them. God created and is living and is not created. God is not an idol made by hands, and Jesus proved all this by being raised from the dead. He argues in a way that makes sense to them. You know, let's talk about the Exodus. He's not talking about prophets. He's not talking about how God is revealed in nature. What he's doing is using an argument that he thinks will stick to them. Paul is brilliant at taking the gospel and wrapping it in, in, in ways of communicating it that are appealing to his audience. And his audience is often willing to respond to it in diverse ways. Some hear it and are willing to listen, and some reject it and are not. But we have to understand that the gospel is always proclaimed within the context of the communicator and the listener. Last week we talked about how uh, the gospel has two enemies within the church, the enemy of, uh, of, of legalism and the enemy of relativism. And anytime it goes into legalism and relativism, it becomes very problematic and it fails to be the gospel, that those are in opposition to the gospel as, as Jesus models living it and preaching it and proclaiming it. Uh, this week what I want to do is say that, that the gospel always has to be adapted to culture, but you can under-adapt it to culture and you can over-adapt it to culture. 
When you under-adapt the gospel to culture, what happens is you show up and you preach the gospel in a way that may be completely true, but doesn't at all reach the ears of the audience that you intend for it to, to, to reach. It can be really preachy. If you show up to people that don't have any background in religious language and tell them uh, to confess, not a word we use, repent, not a word we use, because salvation uh, and, and atonement are all there, they're going, what are you talking about? You're under-adapting the gospel. And the gospel is also under-adapted when you show up in the world and you tell the world everything in the world is evil all the time, you're evil, you're bad, you're awful, you're combative with your audience. They're not going to hear that. If you just show up and tell them that you're lost and wrong and that you're just going to go to hell, if you don't, you're under-adapting the gospel. If you only talk about God when you're in church and you never talk to the world about it, you're under-adapting the gospel by never taking it to the ears of the people that need to hear it. On the other hand, you can over-adapt the gospel. You can make it to where you are just tickling the listening ears of your audience in ways that they agree with everything you're saying because it doesn't call them to do anything different. It doesn't call them to change. It doesn't ring true with the four chapters of the gospel that God created, sin destroys, Jesus saves, and we believe. If your gospel emits one of those because it's in conflict with culture, you've over-adapted and you're not calling people to actually transform their lives into the real good news of Jesus Christ. And we can't do either one of those because if we do, then we're not calling people to actually be followers of Jesus. We're either not speaking to them in a way that makes a difference, or we're saying, you can believe in Jesus without changing anything you believe or any way you behave or anything you do or are. Paul could have gone to the Areopagus and preached a sermon on how God created Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and the prophets, and they would have said, we don't know these people and we don't care. That's under-adapting his sermon. He could have gone to them uh, and said, listen, I want to tell you about a God who doesn't care about idols. You can keep your idols. As long as you say that Yahweh is one of your gods, that's good enough for me. As long as you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that's good enough for me. You can even still worship Yahweh up there at the Parthenon with all the uh, temple workers and everything else. That's fine. You can keep doing that as long as you recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. Just make him the head God. You can keep all the others. That would be over-adapting the gospel to just get more of them to believe. You don't have to change how you worship and how you practice your religion as long as you add Jesus to what you're doing. That's not the gospel, though. That's not the truth that God needs the world to hear. So what it looks like for us today is we under-adapt the gospel when we communicate it in ways that the world is not interested in. And we don't take the time to listen and understand their worldview their values, their poets, in a way that lets us communicate in their words and their language. We over-adapt when we go into the world and we say, oh yeah, you can believe anything you want. God doesn't care. He's gracious and forgiving. Sin's not that big of a deal. Um, Jesus is a way, a truth, but there's lots of truths. In fact, if you want another truth to get to God, that's probably okay too. But we think Jesus is better than most options if you're interested. We're over-adapting to a world that doesn't want to hear that Jesus is the only way to God. We're not doing any good. The gospel way requires us 
to find meaningful ways to listen to the world so that we have something worth saying to them about who Jesus is and the difference he makes. But when we say it, Jesus better make a difference or else we're just telling people part of the gospel that's not really true. How do we do it? Paul's incredibly effective at this, and it's important to know that in some of the sermons he preaches, that many times there's a number of people who believe, and the other people want to stone him. And so if we go into the world and we preach the good news, and some are saved, and the rest despise us, we're in good company. And that doesn't mean that we're failing. In fact, it might mean that we're doing it exactly right. If we go into a world that doesn't believe in God or His truths, and we preach a gospel that doesn't offend some of them, then we're not preaching an appropriate truth. We've over-accommodated the world. But if we go into the world and we speak the truth of the gospel, and no one is willing to hear because we're not listening to them to figure out how to communicate the truth, that's on us too. Some should always be saved and be willing to follow a gospel well-preached and a gospel well-lived. And some should always be offended and respond with anger to a gospel well-presented. And if we're preaching in a way that doesn't cause either one of those reactions, we probably need to reevaluate the way that we're proclaiming God to the world. Because that's pretty much how everyone responds in Scripture. Some believe some respond with anger. The real ways that we... Oof, I need to wrap that up. Um, yep, I have other illustrations. You don't need them. That's what, well, here's what you need to know. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God created, sin destroys, Jesus saves, and we believe. You have to proclaim it. We cannot keep just living lives under-adapting the gospel by not saying it to anyone. And we can't just go tell everyone, you're okay, don't worry about it, in a way that's over-adapting. We have to find ways to call people to faith. And we have to find ways to enter into those conversations in meaningful, meaningful ways so that some will be saved and some will be offended, and that's the calling we've got. If you need to respond to that gospel today, or if you have any other need, please come forward this morning as we, do we stand and sing? Do we have a song? Yeah, as we, as we stand and have a song. That's what we do. The orders of the two services are a little bit unusual. Let's stand and worship God together. I can't sing. The water's raging at my feet. I can't Surrounding me, I can hear the sound of nations rising up.